0: scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. Father, now we ask for you to prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on page 573, 573, Isaiah chapter 9. Earlier this year, as uh, you probably all know, the Queen of England, Elizabeth II, died at age 96 after more than 70 years of reigning on the throne as the Queen. This was the longest reign of any monarch in Israel's history, in in England's history. Well, maybe in Israel's history too, but um, in England's history. It was a remarkable reign. She served honorably her entire life. But as extraordinary as that was, like all those who came before her and those who will follow her, her reign eventually ended. She died. All kings and queens on this earth will one day cease to be kings and queens On this earth. But in Isaiah chapter 9, we hear about a coming king who will rule and reign not for a few decades, not even for 70 years, but forever. Isaiah chapter 9, look with me at verses 6 and 7. For to us a son. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. We know that this child, this child that Isaiah prophesied of, would be none other than Jesus. Jesus the Messiah, who the writer of Hebrews calls or says is the same yesterday, today, and today forever. Isaiah described this coming king with four divine titles. We heard them read already. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first title. Pastor Chris preached through what that meant for Jesus to be the wonderful counselor. Jesus whose wisdom leads his people. But direction or wisdom without capacity or capability means little. So the second name we see is not only is he a wonderful counselor, but he is the mighty God. He's the all-powerful ruler. These titles, these first titles speak of the character of this king. And that's what, that is what Isaiah is describing. They, they, they describe who he is. He's not just wise, he is wise, he's not just wise, he is able. The last two names speak about the character of his reign as king. He is a provider and he is a prince. Today we'll look at the third name, everlasting father. Before we get to what that means, we ought to understand a difference and a distinction concerning this title. Of the four titles, this third one may seem the hardest to understand being attributed to Jesus. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is called the Son of God. And here, Isaiah is referring to this Son as everlasting Father. That seems like a contradiction. We may wonder... What is Isaiah trying to say about this son, who we know is Jesus? Is the son here also the father, as in God the father? Is there no distinction being made here by Isaiah between Jesus and the father? If that were what Isaiah was saying, it would be a belief called modalism, And there are people who believe in modalism today. Modalism is is the belief that there is one God, but who reveals himself in three modes. Matt Slick from the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry writes this. Modalism states that God is a single person who, throughout biblical history, has revealed himself in three modes or forms. Thus, God is a single person who first manifested himself in the mode of the Father in the Old Testament times. At the Incarnation, the mode was the Son. And after Jesus' ascension, the mode is the Holy Spirit. These modes are consecutive and never simultaneous. In other words, this view states that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit never all exist at the same time, only one after another, Modalism denies the distinctiveness of the three persons of the Trinity, even though it retains the divinity of Christ End quote. This is a belief that is, is a denial of the biblical teaching on what we refer to as the Trinity," or the Triunity. The triunity of the Godhead. The triunity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a denial. This denial is a theological error. It is a heresy, actually. It is unorthodox. And it, it, it's true today. People believe this today. But this was, has been around for a very long time. It actually was around in the very first century. In 200 A.D., the early church father Tertullian was dealing with this very heresy. It, it started early, it's been around early. But Isaiah is not saying that the Son of God is God the Father. That is not at all what he is saying. So what distinction is, should be made here? A, a biblical understanding of the Trinity is that there is one God who exists in three persons, three distinct, coexistence and co-eternal persons. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God who exists in three persons. You might say, that really doesn't make sense to me. Okay, we're all on the, the same page now, right? The Trinity doesn't make sense to us. How can there be one in three? We, we, we can't understand that, but the Bible clearly communicates that there is one God Monotheism, there's one God, and yet there are three persons. 3 coexistent, co-existent, co-eternal. Coexisted, existing at the same time, not in, in sequential order as in modalism. Not in a, a mode at, at one point or a, a different point at another time. No, in fact, there is one God. This, this uh, graphic might, might help us just to understand this that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are are, are all God. But the Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And we could keep going. They are distinct. They are are unique to one another, or unique to themselves, but they are together God. This is an all-important distinction for us to clarify today. You might say, "I, I didn't I wasn't really thinking we were going to talk about modalism this morning on Christmas. Right? But but here's the problem. We are living in an age of increasing biblical illiteracy where you can read a passage like this attributed to Jesus and say, Isaiah's calling Jesus the Father. Maybe that's what Isaiah is saying. Maybe Isaiah is saying that at one point in time, Jesus was the Father. And then when he came, then he's Jesus. And then when he left, now he's the spirit. We need to be clear about what we mean when we talk about God. Sometimes we use the word Jesus and we really mean God the Father. Sometimes we say God the Father, we really mean Jesus. You may say, does it matter? They're all God. Well, it seems to matter to God. Because why? There are three persons. It matters to God. It matters to his word. And it should matter to us. We ought to understand properly what the Bible is teaching, what Isaiah is teaching Having said that, Isaiah was not writing about the Trinity. He wasn't making some controversial anti-Trinitarian statement by calling Jesus, or the Son, the Everlasting Father. Rather, what Isaiah was doing was saying that this Son would be deity. And as deity, he possesses divine attributes. Jesus, the Son, is one with the Father, Jesus said that of himself in John chapter 10, verse 31. I and the Father are one. There is unity in the Trinity. The tri-unity of God says that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one. But that does not mean that they aren't also individual person. They are distinct in one way. And yet in their essence, they are also one. Jesus was sent by the Father Jesus prayed to the Father. Jesus submitted to the Father. Clearly, they are not the same person. Jesus sent the Spirit. The Spirit indwells us. The Spirit teaches us and points us to Jesus. Clearly, they are not the same person. Because the Son is the Messiah, the Son of God he therefore possesses the attributes of God so he can be rightly called Everlasting Father. But if he is not the Father, what is the nature of the title? Why would he use that language? Why would he talk about it in this way? Well, there's two two ways of looking at this and two points that we'd like to make this morning about how Jesus is the Everlasting Father. Some Bibles don't say everlasting father. They say eternal father. If you have a new American standard Bible. But whether it's everlasting or it's eternal. What's true in the original is that it would read father of eternity. To say that someone is the father of something. Is to say say that they possess that thing. So here are a few biblical examples of that. In the New Testament, it says of God that he is the father of glory. He possesses glory, Ephesians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he is the father of mercies. And he possesses mercy. The father of lights in James chapter 1 verse 17. It's not always positive. In John chapter 8, Jesus talks about the devil as the father of lies, possessing lies, One writer pointing to Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15 says here that Jesus inhabits eternity or he possesses eternity. He is the father of eternity. Harry Ironside writes that Jesus is the one in whom all ages meet. We read, Hebrews chapter 13 already, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always been. He is the eternal king. He is the originator. He is the source. The Bible makes this clear even into the Old Testament concerning Jesus. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, John writes this, In the beginning was the Word. The Word is referring to Jesus here. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he, that's Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, made through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Just a few chapters later, in that same gospel, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, that he is He he exists before time. He exists before anyone else. He has always been. He is eternal. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 say, And you, Lord, laid the foundation. This is referring to Jesus. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain They will wear out like a a garment, like a robe that you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Colossians chapter 1? If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 981, 983. Maybe this is, is one of the, the another clear description of how Jesus is in fact the Father of eternity. He is the everlasting Father in Colossians chapter 1, beginning verse 15. The Apostle Paul already here about the preeminence of Christ, that he is before all things verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said in the Gospels that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. No one has seen the Father. But he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what does Paul say? He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Then verse 17. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. This is the preeminence of Jesus. He is the first. He is above all. He is before all things. And in him, the world itself is held together by Christ. Christ did not show up at Easter. He is eternal. He is God. He was there at creation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit were there at creation. When the writer of Genesis says that God said, let us make man in, his own, in our own image. It's a plural. Who is, who is us? It is the Father, it is the Son, it is the Spirit. Jesus was with the Father at the beginning. Jesus is the Father of eternity. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and he is the last. He is the creator and he is the sustainer. Jesus has always been. There's no creation of Jesus He is eternal. And the eternality of Jesus means that his kingdom has no end. And that's what Isaiah is talking about, isn't it? He's saying there's going to come a a child. There's going to come a son who is going to be a king. And this this government will be upon his shoulders. This kingdom will be upon his shoulders. And not for a short period of time, but forever. Forever he will reign. In contrast with earthly kings who come and go, Jesus is unending. He is everlasting. Again, Isaiah 57, he lives forever. Jesus said of himself in in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, not only does Jesus just possess etern- eternity, he is also our provider. Jesus is called everlasting father because, not because he is God the father, but because he is a fatherly ruler. That is, he is benevolent. He is compassionate. He is just. That sounds like God, doesn't it? All throughout the scriptures we see those same things attributed to God. In places like Psalm chapter 103 verse 13 that says of God as a father shows compassion to his children so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him or Isaiah chapter 64 verse 8 but now O Lord you are our father we are the clay and you are the potter we are all the work of your hand. Or Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 that tells us that his mercies or his compassions never come to an end. They never cease. Everlasting Father means that he is an everlasting lover. He loves, he protects, he nourishes, he instructs, he provides. And in this way, he is a father who cares for his children Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote these words in a sermon on this very text. There is no unfathering Christ, and there is no unchilding us. He is everlasting a father to those who trust in him. And he never does at any one moment cease to be a father to any one of these who trust him. He continues, this morning, if you have come here in trouble, but Christ is your father, this day you may be much depressed in spirit, in full of doubts, in fears, which Charles Haddon Spurgeon dealt with his own set of depression. You might, that might be your scenario. He says, but a true father never ceases if he be a father to exercise his kindness to a child. Nor does Jesus cease to love and pity you. He will help you. Jesus is the everlasting father. Not only that he possesses eternity, not only that he's been here forever, but that he fathers us, that he loves us that he shows compassion on us. What greater sense of compassion could Jesus have shown to you and me but to lay down his life? Scarcely for a righteous man, Paul says in the book of Romans, would a good man dare to die. But God demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us the demonstration of God's love, his compassion was through his son giving up his own life. This child, this child who was born, this son who was given to us and for us is our everlasting father. And this truth brings us hope. Now biblical hope is not Um, a hoping for the best kind of hope. We've talked about this before. There's a difference between when when you and I might use, I hope X happens, and when the Bible talks about hope. Biblical hope, um, Sinclair Ferguson, um, author, illustrates hope this way, biblical hope this way. He says this, Imagine a child, Catching a glimpse of his father sneaking something into the house, something that is difficult to carry. It has two big wheels. If you later were to ask the child, What are you hoping to get for Christmas? he would reply with a big grin, I'm hoping for a new bicycle. Do you think you'll get it? Oh, yes, I am sure. Why is he sure? Because he has seen the bicycle, right? He has seen this, this, these, two, uh, these, two, th- these two tires, these two wheels, and he has seen the hope of it. He has seen the, uh, the, the light, you might say. Ferguson continues, that is hope in a biblical sense. It is being sure that you'll receive something you don't yet have. Why? Because there is a promise. And like the little boy saw the wheels... We on this side of of the manger, uh, on this side of the cross, having the, the word of God before us, see the promises of God. We have seen the promises of God fulfilled, firstly, in the coming of Jesus, but not only in the coming of Jesus, not just in his birth, but in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And so when the Bible promises us that he's going to return to set up a kingdom in which the government will be upon his shoulders forever, we can grin with the little child and say, yes, of course I'm getting it. Of course the kingdom is coming. Why? Because we've seen the promise. We've seen his promises fulfilled before. Isaiah was prophesying of a coming kingdom. We know that the the Messiah has come, but we also know that that one is coming again. Again, look at Isaiah chapter 7. Of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. Listen, verse 6, in some ways, has already happened. right? The, the, the child has been born. The son has been given. But not all of it has happened. The government is not upon his shoulders. Of the increase of government and of peace there will be no end. Well, that hasn't happened yet. You see, you see abundance of peace in our, in our world? No, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and for how long? Forevermore. And how will this happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is prophesying something. He's promising something from God for us. And God keeps his promises. He has kept his promises and he continues to keep his promises. Our hope is rooted in the promise-keeping God. If we have no hope of these promises to be fulfilled, we have no hope. Yet in Jesus, the everlasting Father... We have seen the promises of God fulfilled and therefore we have hope. Jesus, who was promised, who has come, and is coming again, is in fact the everlasting Father. And so what? Right? Well, what, what now? How, how does that affect me now? Yeah, maybe it affects me uh, yet future in the coming kingdom, but how does it affect me now? One way it affects you is that you can just relax a little bit. You can relax a little bit. Do you remember being a kid and your father kind of taking care of things? Do you remember not having so many stresses in the world? Do you remember that your your dad was going to take care of it? You have a father. You have a heavenly father. You don't have to worry. You can relax. Can you imagine that? Christians ought to be the most... Uh, non-anxious people in the world. We ought to be. We actually have a father who we believe is in control. We actually have a father who we believe is orchestrating the events of history and of the future. We believe that there is a God who is all-powerful and his plans will come to fruition, whether we like it or not. And yet we're the ones who are anxious We should be the most non-anxious people in the world. That's not to condemn us in our our anxieties. It's to say, what do we do with that? What do we do with our anxieties? We go to places like this and realize that we have a God who loves us and sent his son for us. We have one who is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Take your worries there. Relax. God has it. His promises are sure for all his promises, the Apostle Paul writes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus has come. He is the everlasting God. God. So not only does, does, does God have this, and that ought to cause us to relax, but we also recognize that Jesus is, is forever. He's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. People come in and out of our lives all the time. Jesus isn't going anywhere He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He is eternal. He has always been and he always will be. He will not stumble. He will not fail you now. He hasn't failed you yet. He will not fail you now. He is an everlasting father. And finally, he's a father. Now, maybe for some, the idea of father brings up some difficult and painful memories Maybe your experiences with your father, or maybe even your experiences as a father, have been hard. But the invitation here is that when the Bible speaks about God being, or Jesus being the everlasting father, or speaks about God the father, we are not to judge God by the fathering we have experienced the experiences that you and I have had with the Father ought not to be placed upon God and say, Well, if 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 God's a father like the father I had, I don't want that kind of father. Well, there's good news. He's not like any father you've ever had, even if you had a good one. He's better. He's perfect. He'll never leave. He'll never forsake. He's not like human fathers. We do not judge God or Jesus based on earthly fathers who all of us struggle and fail, but rather God sets the standard and he proves to be the perfect father. The the word of God tells us that very, very clearly. He is the one who is wise, who is powerful, who is unending, who is full of peace and who can be trusted. So let, let his fathering care the fathering care of the everlasting father. Let that comfort you this Christmas. It's what we long for, isn't it? The help and comfort, knowing that someone else is carrying this burden with me, whatever that is. Some of us try to carry it all by ourselves. You're not meant to carry it all by yourself. You're meant to recognize that you can't do it. If you can do it, what's... What's the purpose of Jesus? If you can handle life on your own, why did Jesus come? If you can save yourself, why did Jesus come? No, Jesus came because you can't. Because I can't. Because we have a need. And God in grace has provided for our need. No matter what your experiences have been, Christian, you can know this, that there is no unfathering Christ and no unchilding us unfathering Christ in unchilding us. I think he's making up words, but but it's it's good here, right? There's no unfathering Christ. You, You can't undo this. And if you're a Christian today, here's the great news. You can't be unchilded. You are his. In Christ, you are a child of God. And you can do nothing about it. In a day and age of uncertainty, all around us. In a day and age of, of fear that lurks behind every new, head, new headline. In a day and age where, where there's a temptation to believe that the sky is falling. We can know this, that the father of eternity is before all things and in him all things hold together. You might think the world's about ready to come apart. You might watch, watch the nightly news or your, your vice of news consumption and you might think that it, whatever. Colossians chapter one tells us this, that Jesus holds the whole, whole world together. So until Jesus stops holding the whole world together, we're good. We're good. That doesn't mean our, our country will prosper. It doesn't mean we're not gonna have hard times, but it means the sky actually isn't falling yet. When Jesus forsakes you, then, then get, get worried. But Jesus isn't going to forsake you because he's never left you before. And he promises to never leave you yet. So relax. Christmas is this great invitation to know that your greatest need has been met in Jesus. The thing you long for, whatever it is, hope, acceptance, forgiveness, life, a future, it has come. It has come in the person of Jesus. We, we look all over for it. We, we, look, we look to other people for this. We look to, to money for this. We look to a job for this. When it's right here. It's already here. He's here. He's here to give to you what you so desperately need. He is with you. He is for you. And he will not cease to love you and care for you. He has bought you with a price. He will keep you safe and he will hold you fast until the day of redemption. if you don't know that this morning, you can know it. You can know that Jesus came. He came not just to be born in a major but to live the life that we could not live and die the death we should have died in order to bring us back to God, to save us from our sins. Jesus came to us and he came for us. And our response is to hear his words that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And in so doing, you'll be brought into the family of God. In so doing, your sins will be forgiven. In so doing, you have the hope of heaven In so doing, you'll know this one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And you'll know him not just in the pages of the Bible, but you'll know him as your Lord and as your savior. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord today. you and I both know that life is not particularly easy. We experience hard times. Many of you who sit here this morning have experienced hard times, even this past year, this past two years, maybe many more than that. But Christmas tells us that there is good news that has come into our darkness. A favorite quote of mine is from a pastor named Greg Laurie. I've shared it before and i probably shared it with some of you personally, but it goes like this. At times like these, there are no words, but there is the word. There is no manual, but there is Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with us. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, Emmanuel. God is with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being with us. Thank you for setting your son to be with us. This son who is the father of eternity, always has been and always will be. This son who cares, loves, protects, provides for his own. This son who holds the world together. This son who gave up his very life that we might have it. That's the son who was given. That's the Christmas story. That's the one in whom we pray. In the name of Jesus we pray, God. Thankful for this son. Thankful for this child. Thankful for the hope that he offers. For those who will find their hope in him who will submit themselves to him, who will see him as the king of all of life, they will rightly bow in repentance of sin, in confession of faith, in Christ as Lord and Savior. For those who have yet to do that, God, I, I pray that your spirit would, would open the eyes of their heart to see their need of Jesus, and they would cry out to him for salvation. For those who have, Would you again assure their hearts? Would you uh, again, through your word and through your spirit, give them a sense of hope in a time where they might feel like there is less hope? Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this everlasting Father in whose name we pray. Amen.